Welcome to ECDA Charing Conversation with Saudi Women, presented by Deborah, Manon, Mariangela, and Sherry. We hope that through this series you will get a better understanding of the women's rights situation in Saudi Arabia and why our participants left the country. All of them are now very active in the fight for human rights and this might be a great opportunity for you to get inspiration from amazing women. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. So welcome everybody. I'm joined by Saha Al-Faithi, a member of the Saudi National Assembly Party. She is a molecular geneticist by training and community activist by passion. Saha is known for her activism in anti-racism and her outspoken campaigns against Islamophobia in the UK, using her own image and experience to break down stereotypes. She is also a blogger at the Huffington Post and has written for The Independent. Today, we talk about Sahar's experience as a Saudi woman and how her activism now links back to her Saudi origins. Welcome, Sahar, and thank you for agreeing to join us and share your experience. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Sahar, you were born and raised in Saudi Arabia before you moved to Cardiff at the age of 19. We'd really like to know what was it like for you growing up in Saudi Arabia as a young woman, particularly during your teenage years and going on into adulthood? Did you face any challenges or any gender discrimination at that age? Thank you so much for these questions. And, and I know a lot of people are always interested about women lifestyle in Saudi and what you hear in the media about human rights violation and oppression and uh, the fact that Saudi is the only country in the world that, that does not allow women to drive. So a lot of people are interested about, you know, how does Saudi women live her life? And the truth is that growing up in Saudi, I was in a household that valued uh, freedom and integrity. And I was brought up that women are independent entity and they should not have been relying on others to advocate on their behalf. Uh, my father uh, specifically, he was the one who was pushing me not only to achieve and find my place in the public life, but to always speak on, on behalf of myself. That is my household. But outside the household, the story is different. And that was the shock for me. Outside the household, what we see is the guardianship uh, system that is imposed in, in all women in Saudi. And what that means that women cannot do and deal with their affairs at government public building. They cannot participate in public life unless there is a male guardian. They cannot travel alone unless they had a male guardian with them. And let me emphasize here that these practices are not Islamic at all. And they only came when the Al Saud came to power and they have imposed their family Bedouin tradition on the rest of Saudi citizens. Before Al Saud came to power, women were free to participate in public life, in businesses. And we know like from the Islamic history and tradition, we know that the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a great businesswoman. She employed her husband. She was the boss of her husband. And none of this oppressive practices were spread. But when Al-Saud came to power, 
the story has changed with the guardianship system, with also violence against women in Saudi. I mean, violence against women is, is a huge problem, is a global problem across the world, is not Saudi specific, but the issue with Saudi that is hardly anyone speaks about, there is no uh, safe refuge for women who are facing domestic violence. And if there is, and they joined it, they will be demonized uh, by the society and, and things like that. And a lot of these are traditions that were imposed by Al Saud, who then also have selected a group of scholars, Islamic scholars, who actually in align with their views. So when you, when you talk about Islam as a religion, it's very diverse, but the, the Saudi authority has selected scholars that can feed into their political agenda and enhances their authority in all citizens, including men and women. And, and that, that, that's the truth, you know, a lot, a lot of the Western media focuses on, on women, Saudi women, but the truth is also Saudi men are suffering. But yeah, maybe the women are suffering more because of this guardianship system and domestic violence and things like that. But the truth is that all Saudi citizens are oppressed because there is no freedom of speech, there is no freedom of assembly, there's no freedom of movement in, in Saudi Arabia because of these government practices that are also backed by Western governments uh, like the US, the UK. You know, the UK has invested a lot in arms deal with Saudi Arabia since Margaret Thatcher was in power, the leader of the Conservative Party. There was a lot of corrupted arms deal where Britain has sold countless arms to Saudi Arabia. In return, it was silent on all the human rights violation against both men and women. Going back to your experience as a younger person, do you think it differed from any of your other female peers because you grew up in a particular household that was quite open and very you know, supportive of you and treated you and your siblings as equals. Do you think other of your peers who might not have grown up in those sort of households, did you have different experiences then? I think the majority of households are like this, but then these imposed practices by the authority would change that. You know, there are women who cannot leave their houses without the permission of, of their husband. And this is not Islamic. You know, I, I don't want to feed the Islamophobic narrative, right? This is not Islamic or they cannot travel or access education. But the thing is also women issues are not only about guardianship and domestic violence. Women in Saudi also suffer from poverty, suffer from unemployment. The job market in Saudi doesn't suit the education, the, the degrees that they have to access. You know, most women in Saudi, they think that is only teaching is the available option. There is no job market, there's no creativity and education. And, and what we see now is a desperate, absolutely desperate attempt by MBS to beautify 
the ugly image of Saudi in the West to appease the West. So we heard recently that for the first time, Saudi women were allowed to join the police forces in Mecca, the holy site of Mecca, during Hajj, the pilgrimage. And, you know, it, it was like it's, like, it's like too little, too late. You know, it was too little, too late. And it was all or only for the media in the West to feed the media in the West because serious changes, serious reform need to start from the bottom where these practices are number one challenged, where women are able to look for jobs without the fear of misogyny and discrimination, where poverty is eliminated. Poverty should not exist in a country like Saudi Arabia one of the most richest country in the world with oil resources like no others, yet we still see women begging, women looking for food from the bins, women struggling to go to university three, four hours away from their city or, or their village. So it's a complex of, of issues that women suffer from. The Western media like to, to focus on guardianship and domestic violence, you know, because sometimes it fits their agenda. The, the women issues are far more deeper than guardianship and domestic violence. You know, women are not treated as independent entities and therefore cannot access so many aspects of life in, in Saudi Arabia, despite the desperate attempt of MBS to, to change that image. And you mentioned that your family life was very different from, you know, the wider Saudi society because of the oppressive regime. Do you remember any specific experiences that could exemplify this oppression for both women and men, as you described it? I think if there's one incident that I can recall, and it happened to me in Saudi and has contributed to who I am today and my activism, was a, an event that took place in Saudi Arabia while I was going to school and my dad was driving the car to drop me off to school and it happened to be someone from the royal family driving in the same road as my dad and he wanted to overtake him and what my dad did in that instant he just it was his right so he continuously drove on that road until a car stopped him and what happened the people who were driving next to him and who were from the royal family and people who are close to the royal family Saudi royal family they came out of the car they opened my dad's car grabbed him out of the car and beat him up in the front of my eyes while I was going to school and that was, and I was 14 years old, so I was really young. I didn't know, I wasn't political. I didn't know what the Saudi royal family does, but that was like the personal experience where I realized that us as citizens are not equal as someone else. And they're not only overtaking the road in my dad's instant, um, but they're overtaking everything, the land, the people, and also what is underneath the land. We're talking about the oil and, and the resources. From that incident, I came out, I screamed at these 
members of, of the royal family, and I can tell from the car, the number plate, the way they were dressing and their attire, I can tell that they were really powerful people. And I screamed at them, calling them to stop beating my dad. And they stopped. Surprisingly, they stopped. And that was the time when I realized that me as a woman, my voice is valuable and my voice can change things. And obviously that contributed to my activism in Britain later on and, and now with joining the National Assembly Party where I'm focusing my activism in Saudi Arabia, promoting democracy and equal citizenship for all citizens in Saudi. But if you were to ask me about a specific incident where I realized that, oh gosh, we're not equal, that would be the incident. It must have been quite an experience for a 14 year old as well. And I'd love to ask you later about how you found your voice and how you went on into activism. But thank you for giving that experience. It's, it's quite harrowing, but also really quite a vivid example of the things you're talking about. Now, you left Saudi Arabia when you were 19, and it was a, a journey you made with your family. Uh, you sought asylum in the UK. Can you tell us about this decision your parents took to leave Saudi Arabia? Under what circumstances did they leave and was it an easy decision for them to make? It was uh, definitely the most difficult decision you could ever make because uh, my dad, as, as an activist, he made this decision to continue his political activism, but also to ensure our freedom as, as his uh, children. And it wasn't easy because it was not common. Saudis do not leave their countries. They don't seek asylum, uh, not for humanitarian reasons or political reasons. It's not common. Nowadays, it's common. When MBS came to power, we started to see more Saudi refugees, more Saudi asylum seekers, especially going to Canada and the UK and America. These three countries have become the hotspots for Saudi activists. And now for the first time in history, we can say there is a Saudi community abroad. Because before that, there was just students who are sponsored by the Saudi government. They would come here, they study, they go back and that's it. Now there is actually Saudi community in the UK, a community of activists, the community of refugees, a community of asylum seekers. The story is the same in Canada and America and other places in the world. But in, in 2004, the story was different and therefore it was very hard for my dad to make this decision. And it was also hard in the way that we did it because we actually had to sneak out because if the Saudi authority knew that we were leaving to seek asylum, we would not have left. And I remember my dad buying return flights to UK, return flights to UK to give them the impression that we're only going for holiday. And as soon as we came to Heathrow Airport, we submitted our political asylum at the airport legally following everything. And my dad showed them the evidences of his activism and everything. And it was very hard, um, especially also I've never been to Western country before. I, I don't know how people deal with each other, their practices and things like that. But slowly, slowly, I not only adapted to, to the life in Britain, but also I became part of it, you know, active citizens you know, with the community work, with my education, where I did my degree in genetics and masters and so on. I, and I become part of the community and, and, you know, just going beyond just like 
all our citizens and, and that's it, but do, doing more. And, and it was remarkable experience because in Britain, there is a big margin of freedom. A lot of the activi- activities that I did in uni or with the societies and universities, I would not have dreamt of doing these activities back in Saudi. I would be in prison for just organizing a lecture or you know, calling the students uh, to discuss a justice campaign or doing something for Palestine. All these privileges I accessed through during my time in university in Britain. So I have also valued the freedom that I found here in the UK and has also contributed to my activism. Well, you call yourself a Cardiffian and your life is very much based in the UK and Wales in particular. Do you think your family can ever go back to Saudi Arabia? And would you personally ever want to go back to Saudi Arabia yourself? So this is an emotional question and I will have to have an emotional answer. Obviously, the dream is to go back to Saudi Arabia, but to a democratic Saudi Arabia, to a free, independent Saudi Arabia, where its sovereignty is respected, where the citizens are treated equally, where the wealth is also distributed equally amongst their citizens. Are we able to go back soon? not not sure about that because currently we we have an oppressive autocratic regime we have the only royal family ruling in the world it's in in Saudi Arabia you know the only ruling monarch in the world is still existing in Saudi Arabia and you have MBS where he's got all the powers in in his hand and there's no separation of of power there's no separation of of the of the media power from the jurisprudence power from the executive powers all the powers all the executive power the judiciary the media everything is in the hand of one person who is 36 years old and he's the one who decides on who's to go to prison, who's not to go to prison, who's going to get his salary and the the end of this month, who who doesn't. So it it is extremely suffocating if you were to go back to Saudi. It's not only about your freedom, it's also about your dignity. You know, it's, it's a constant humiliation. The whole system in Saudi is designed to humiliate its citizens to beg for rights and we should not beg for rights, you know, and rights shouldn't be given. Rights are rights, you fight for them. You don't beg for them, but the systems are designed where you beg for rights and when your rights are given to you, you feel so appreciative uh, to it as it's not actually your right, you know. So it's really suffocating. There's no way I would go back to Saudi now at its current situation, but I am hopeful with the large increasing number of activists and asylum seekers abroad, with the, the, the unity, the sense of unity amongst activists is quite inspiring. What you see, for example, in the National Assembly Party that I'm part of, a lot of the activists came from different backgrounds. There are some who came from Islamic background, liberal, secular, socialist, communist, All of them, they're all Saudis, but they all have different backgrounds and they're all united for one thing, that this 
oppressive autocratic regime should not stay and that we as Saudi citizens, like other citizens in the world, we deserve democracy, freedom, justice and, and equality for all. And it's very inspiring uh, to see. And that what moved me or made me decide to move away a little bit from British activism to, to, to Saudi activism. Great. You did mention earlier your family and particularly your father inspired you to ask for change and be active within your community. And I wondered if you could tell us more about this journey. Uh, you mentioned earlier also the moment where you found your voice, you discovered that as a Saudi woman, it was important and it had an effect. Could you tell us more about that? Uh, definitely. So my, my dad is a trade unionist. Mm. Uh, he, he used to work in a British company called BAE and System, which is also an arms company that was established by the Conservative Party in Britain, specifically Margaret Thatcher, in my city, Al-Khubar, in, in the eastern province of, of Saudi Arabia. And my dad started his activism by simply pr protecting workers' right of the company because every few months they would make a decision to lower their salary for no reason. And my dad started mobilizing the workers to resist these illegal changes. You know, even according to the Saudi labor laws, this, that was illegal for them to change, but no one was brave enough to speak against it because the one who proposed the changes was the Minister of Defense at that time, Prince Sultan al-Saud, who now passed away. But he was the opponent of my dad, the Minister of, of Defense, and proposing these changes, lowering their salary and things like that. Also, my dad also noticed the discrimination in the workplace. You know, him and a Pakistani guy next to him and an American guy next to him working in the same office, doing the same job, but the American will get paid more than my dad, who's Saudi, and my dad will get paid more than the Pakistani. And there was like a hierarchy in payment just because of your ethnicity, despite the merits, despite the experience. And, and my dad fought against this. My dad fought for equal pay for everyone, despite their ethnicity. And as a result, his life was threatened. He was really worried for, him, for us as, as children, for our future because he was threatened to be sacked, he was threatened to be killed, and we just had to flee the country midnight, leaving everything behind us, you know, we've just taken our suitcases and, and we say everything behind us, I'm talking about our houses, um, a big houses, luxurious life, all of that that we have left behind to come to Britain for, for safety and, and, and for freedom and dignity. Your father being so active and being so outspoken, did that influence you in how outspoken you were and how you spoke out as a Saudi woman in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, definitely. My dad not only influenced me, but inspired me. There was no difference in, in the way that we were brought up in, as a siblings between me and, and my brothers. And, and seeing my dad going through these challenges, and I remember like 
people coming to him and saying, why did you have to do this? You know, just keep silent, you know, keep the pay. You're going to get paid at the end of the month. Why, why do you have to speak about it? You know, just live your life. You know, you don't have to. And, and I remember the pressure that my dad used to witness on a, in a daily life. And that affected me, made me think that life is not about just eating and drinking and enjoying, but life is about finding your purpose, finding your, your mission. And obviously because of that, my, my dad has inspired my activism, but not only my dad, a lot of the activists that I met, including Shua, has, has inspired me to carry on on, on this uh, mission because ultimately we dream for the day where we go back to, to Saudi safely and where everyone is treated equally. Now, your activism in the UK has ranged from tackling Islamophobia to widening Muslim participation in politics. And now you are a member of the National Assembly Party. It's described as the first organized political resistance founded during the rule of King Salman in Saudi Arabia. So it's pretty new and pretty big. Can you tell mm -hmm. us how you came to join the National Assembly Party and why, as a self-described Cardiffian, it's important for you to advocate for democracy in Saudi Arabia today? So the National Assembly Party, in Arabic, Hizb al-Tajammu' al-Watani, for short, NAS, it's a party that advocates for democracy in, in Saudi Arabia. We're not here to call to roll the country we're not here to change the regime as such but we're calling for uh, these practices to change and for democracy to introduce and and be implemented and what we mean is that we want saudi people to have the right to elect and select the people whom they want to represent. The current authority is not representative to all Saudi people, and people have the rights to participate in any political uh, processes. In the party, we also call for the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement. We also call for the release of the 30,000 political prisoners in Saudi Arabia currently in secret prisons in the middle of the desert that hardly anyone can visit, including the United Nation. And we've seen in the recent years that the autocratic government has imprisoned people of all backgrounds. We're not only talking about Islamic scholars who were in prison, we're talking about feminists, including, you know, Lujain al-Hadlul and Aziz al-Yusuf and, uh, Samar Bedawi, these are uh, prominent uh, Saudi feminists who fought for women's rights, including the right to drive. They were put in prison. You know, Lujain al-Hadlul was released only a few weeks ago after three years in prison. So this is what the party represent. We call for democracy in Saudi Arabia. And it's, yes, as you said, is the first of its kind because before a few years ago, there's no such thing as Saudi community abroad. And now there is Saudi community abroad, but there is also group of activists that are scattered across the globe. And what does the National Assembly Party does? It's a hub. It's a hub for these activists to come together, for their views and vision to be united. And this is the very thing that MBS fears 
is unity amongst activists because one of their tactics in Saudi is to separate and to divide the Saudi community on a tribal basis, on a class basis, on ethnic basis, it's all about division. So when you see the activists are united abroad representing a vision for Saudi Arabia where it's free and democratic, it really does threat the people in power, including MBS. So it is the dream is finally we can see that we can say there is a vehicle for all these activists to, to ride and be on board. Saha, you've always been vocal about your experience as a Muslim woman in the UK. Can you tell us why today you chose to share with us about your experience as a Saudi Arabian woman? Yes, in the last few years, I was active against Islamophobia in Britain, which was rising with the far right rising. And I've been vocal against Islamophobia because obviously of who I am and my attire as a Muslim woman who decided out of her choice to wear the, the, the niqab in public life, something the far right really hates, right? But now I'm focusing on Saudi activism in a hope to be a mean for a change in, in the country of my origin. It doesn't mean that I have abandoned uh, Wales, you know, you can still have multiple identities. I have always uh, thought of myself as an Arab, as a Welsh, as a Muslim, as a woman, and there's no conflict between these identities. But being a Saudi woman, uh, also in a privileged place, you know, I am privileged that I can talk to you, I can say whatever I want in the UK, I hope that my voice would contribute to the change that we want to see in, in Saudi because I am not fearful of being in prison in the UK for saying what I, I say. You know, if I was in Saudi, I would not have dreamt of, of saying anything like that. So I just want to use the privileges that I have to make the change that we want uh, to see in, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So you were the recipient of the Women Inspire Community Activist Award in 2019 and the Noor Inyat Khan Muslim Woman of the Year Award in 2020. Now, both awards showcase the achievements of your work and aims to inspire future generations to come. So in this light and in light of what you've said already about trying to inspire change to come, We'd like to end the interview by asking you, what message would you give to young Saudi women and men in the UK and Saudi Arabia today? The message I would give is to be united against oppression and leave all the differences and the divisions behind the door. The problem is one and unity should be one in order to, to defeat it. So my message to the young women and young men out there, do not get busy in the nitty gritty differences out there and let's focus on the oppression that is affecting us all, which is the current Saudi oppressive regime. It's been a pleasure to interview you and on behalf of ECDHR, thank you Sahar Fofi for speaking to us today. Thank you so much, it was my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Sherry. 
on behalf of ECDHR, thank you for joining us and for listening to our podcast. The next episode will be available next Friday. You can find a few recommended readings from our interviewees in the show notes for each episode. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our social media channels if you want to learn more about the human rights situation in the GCC countries. <laughs>